Today we're speaking with Tinia Pina, founder and CEO of Renewable. Welcome to the podcast, Tinia. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. I suppose to start with, could you tell us a little bit about Renewable? Yeah, Renewable is headquartered in New York City. Our facilities in upstate New York, and essentially what we do is we take unrecoverable produce waste sourced from food manufacturers, distributors, and processors, and within 24 hours we turn it into a platform of sustainable technologies for the indoor farming industry. All that really means is we basically take recoverable waste stream and essentially make it so that we can displace the need for synthetic mineral salts, which is a predominant nutrient source for these farms. And we also have a product that can be the grow media that these farms grow from as well. And what drove that initial decision to start Renewable? Yeah, you know, Renewable was kind of like an amalgamation of a number of different experiences and observations. So I'm not technically trained by any means to be a biologist or horticulturalist, Uh anyone in the farming industry. But I did learn, you know, firsthand through not only an advisor of ours and close colleague of mine, Matt Farrell, who has built greenhouses and has worked with a lot of our customers, what the most like prevalent customer pain points. And it really came down to for them to being able to grow organically. But before we kind of look at it from a, a market driven problem, I, it was personal for me in 2012, I was a prep SAT teacher through New York Cares, but that that was just a volunteer commitment I had on the weekends. And on Saturdays from 8 a.m. till 3 p.m., we were essentially, you know, having kids basically prepared to take their SAT. And what they were bringing for their lunch I was often highly processed, not really the most nutrient-dense food. And I felt that, you know, what I was seeing immediately after lunch, a lot of their attention levels and what I also felt to be a long-term systemic disadvantage would be the access to nutrition and how that impacts productivity in the long term. And so you take that immediate observation that I'm seeing in a, a volunteer capacity, and I'm looking at, okay, in New York City, in, in that year, we were spending $77 million to export food waste to China, Pennsylvania, Virginia. Yep. That's only going to increase as more people, uh, they're calling for roughly 80% by 2050 for the world's population to inhabit urban areas. So how can we take this growing waste stream and essentially enable more farms to grow either zero with zero chemicals or less chemically laden food? And that helps connect the circle for me into worms of what I was seeing in the classroom, because as more farms produce less chemically laden food, that increases the supply of organic produce. As a result of that, inherently, we should be able to bring down the price point so that more of this type of produce category is available to these underserved communities. We're never, Renewable will never be able to change the impact from a behavioral perspective or a purchasing power perspective for these you know, families to purchase organic produce, but hopefully through a result of more supply, a general awareness to, to eat better. I've always had a personal position on that. I love that. And this was, you know, one of the kind of kind of typical ways people have tried to respond to the food waste is through composting of various types. So how do you think about where composting, you know, I suppose has failed somewhat or how that industry is going overall? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think people don't realize how fragmented and how different the composting infrastructure for each region. And let me just kind of look at it from a New York state perspective. In upstate New York, you have large composting facilities. And sometimes those composting facilities are within 50 miles of where a large food manufacturer may be. Here in downstate New York City, 
it's oftentimes, you know, 100 miles away, 50 to 100 miles away, we'll say, up to two hours, right? So when you look at the emissions and the hauling done very concentrated and, and contributing to the pollution here within within New York City, and then having to haul that all the way two hours north of us, you know, there's only, there's a need for what is distributed closer proximity solutions to compost or provide compost-like solutions, and in a way that is going to help New York State, which has been very active and progressive for reducing their emissions across a number of industries. The transportation is one of them. Hmm. You know, people don't realize how it's treated very differently. And for farms specifically, you know, there's on-site farm solutions such as anaerobic digesters, which are great. There's a, a fit for that. But at the same time, anaerobic digesters are great at taking municipal waste because it's mixed, it's it's a large volume of it, but there's a lot of sensitivities and nuances as to how anaerobic digesters, or we'll say ADs, can be a better solution either to service the waste for cities or farms in general. So it's it's very different and on a case-by-case basis. That makes a ton of sense. And I guess like back in those kind of early initial days when, you know, you're absorbing, like this is the stage of play that we have today, you want to make that change. You know, what did that kind of initial MVP look like to try to solve for this problem? Yeah, initially, you know, so on paper, right, we were looking at taking retrofitted shipping containers and there was a technology partner that we were going to work with where they were enabling us to distribute these retrofitted shipping containers that had a modular anaerobic digester uh, within it, and we were going to house them next to the food distribution centers so that if there were any waste that could not be diverted to a food bank, we could take it on site. And it had a lot of sex appeal because the energy, which was a byproduct of these shipping containers, could be used to offset the energy costs of these distribution centers. But it was a double-sided business model, which is incredibly difficult, especially yep. as someone that's not an anaerobic digester technologist sure. and to raise the project financing for that, the majority of the revenue would have been earned on what was a low value liquid fertilizer from the digestion of the food waste source from that food distributor. And it just was incredibly hard to, you know, then you're shipping a wet product and there's astronomical amount of expense in shipping water. And so we had to quickly change from that into the model that we have now. And so that pivot into uh, indoor farming, so what was the kind of primary appeal of indoor farming as like a target market? The primary appeal was, you know, we knew that after testing, we spent, you know, roughly seven years testing different food waste characterizations or different mixes of food waste and the volumes of that. And what we realized through that is, okay, we could create a compost tea. But the problem is, is that even compost teas, and there's a number of compost tea-like products in the market now, they still don't resolve the challenge that these sterile hydroponic or soilless systems encounter, which is anything that is typically sourced from a biological source is going to encounter what is the development of biofilm because the microbes within it want to basically compete for sources of oxygen. And the plants need that the most, right? And if that's not handled, then there's a typical challenge of if you're not properly managing the usage of organic nutrients or biological nutrients, you can run into the risk of food safety pathogens existing in the system, E. coli, salmonella, and the like. So, and then a third thing on top of that is the nutrients are not being delivered to the plant 
in the consistent and predictable way as a farm would use or be experienced in encountering when they use synthetic mineral salts. And when I say synthetic mineral salts, we're referring to, you ever used or purchased Scott's miracle Grow and they come in yes. like the salts? Yeah. And the grain, great. yeah, yeah. Yeah, great example. Sometimes the salts are blue, sometimes they're clear. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially a great analogy of what these farms are using. Synthetic mineral salts that, you know, you stir in your water, they Mm. completely dissolve, sometimes completely dissolve. And it's a very clean experience from a nutrient perspective. And so they want something similar to that. And when you work with organics, it is not typically the case. So what we've done is we've you know, our intellectual property or IP is around how we uniquely process the food waste in such a way that allows the plants to absorb the nutrients in the same format and time frame as they would with mineral salts. And the other thing is, is that they don't have to worry about the same risk that I just described the farms are scared of encountering with other organic inputs. Hmm. And this is a very different experience than working with soil where soil, you know, soil, you have a buffer, you have the microbes to help break down the nutrients. And Mm -hmm. so they just want something they don't have to, it's not a hassle to manage. Maybe you can't share too much about like the the trade secrets around those, that IP, but you know, this is, what is the kind of general kind of principles? Are you, uh, I suppose, heating the the materials in a specific way? Are you processing them like biomechanically in some interesting way? Yeah. You can speak to any of those principles. Yeah, you actually touched on both of those. So as soon as we receive it, we do put it through pasteurization. It's held to 175 degrees Fahrenheit, minimum of 30 minutes. After that, we do use a biomechanical way that's not catalyzed by enzymes or microbes. So that's what allows us to take the nutrients and make it into a water-soluble nitrate and phosphate format so that the plants, it's immediately available to the plant. Whereas with organics, you typically need microbes to break it down and or you may need seven to 10 days to mineralize and break it down in the format that the plant can immediately absorb that. So we pre-process it mm. in such a way that our facility would do that. That's brilliant. And actually, we've interviewed a few people in the hydroponics and aeroponics space in the last few months and really kind of fascinating, you know, the underlying technology to, you know, I suppose once you get that, those minerals in some ways and those nutrients in some ways, how you deliver them to the actual plant itself, ton of innovation in that space. But I suppose, you know, one of the things, you know, your you know, renewable is somewhat dependent on, I guess, is the growth of the indoor farming market. And so where is that today? And I suppose, what is the kind of outlook over the next few years? I suppose, you know, medium and best case scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. So we see, you know, with our immediate niche or immediate market being indoor vertical greenhouse or just in a traditional indoor farm environment, we see that growing at a compounded annual rate of 20% roughly. And that's not even including cannabis and hemp. And so, you know, our initial go-to-market strategy is to focus on that prevalent problem for them. And the platform of solutions that we provide is we have a nutrient source, we have the grow media, which is alternative to soil. And we also have a system that helps these larger farms be able to take their post-production waste and turn that back into a source of potable water and nutrients to help offset their disposal and input costs. And so we only see this expanding given the erratic climate that we're experiencing, the water limitations, and the drought-like conditions that 
you know, we see here in the U.S. and has always been the case for areas outside. And when you look at other kind of macroeconomic factors, they predict India, for example, to be 80%, I believe, vegetarian by 2023. There's more farms, mega farms and soil farms that I'm speaking of now that are diversifying their portfolio and their way of doing business by investing in more of the indoor farming. Similarly has been the case for food manufacturers and wholesale buyers on the retail aspect of the food uh, supply chain. So, you know, it's unfortunate that the challenges that we're experiencing and need to adapt to has been the main growth led by COVID to this industry. And one question I had on a different interview is how has COVID impacted us? COVID has, we've been fortunate, I should say, to to be in a position where COVID has been an advantage because it is making people realize how much more they want to squeeze out emissions from their supply chain. They want to have more distributed production, distribution, and manufacturing. And we certainly play into that. And they want to be able to reduce their dependence on external imports, external need to import food as well. And so that, I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but you know that certainly, it lends to the growth that we see at hand. Yeah, those kind of tailwinds. And I guess like other kind of tailwinds, when I think about the you know, vertical farming and our farming of various types, one of the previous kind of interviewees, they spoke about how, you know, basically you could actually run the lamps at any time of the day or night. And as we move into this more kind of fluctuating energy grid, sometimes it's like really valuable to be able to, you know, use a lot of energy at, at 2 a.m. in a way that you don't really maybe want to compete with everybody else at 4 p.m., right? And so there is that other advantage as we electrify everything, as we have these more, you know, fluctuating grids, you know, indoor farming can like take an advantage and just mainly be driven by the cost of electricity, you know, in the, over the course of a day. Totally, totally. And it's interesting. It's a data point that we're also trying to collect and be more intelligent about as well, because what we're noticing is that the nutrients and specifically our way we grow is lending to the ability of these plants to have greater resistance to drought-like conditions. And how that relates to energy management is when you think about these vertical farms or these indoor farms where 70 to 80% of their OPEX is spent on energy, it gives them greater flexibility of the range of temperatures. So what does that look like from an annual energy savings? Well, what we're seeing so far is on an acre basis, you could save $5,000 to $6,000 per acre, just allowing these plants to endure higher heat temperatures and not be so heavily dependent on your HVAC to drive with the proper air circulation and cooling temperature. So I totally agree with you. Energy management is certainly a forefront uh, in making this work. And you mentioned this kind of nutrient sources. So it sounds like there's this post-production waste, which is, you know, basically a pure circular economy play on site, which is super exciting. And then you mentioned that you have this kind of source upstate New York that you're currently utilizing. You know, what are the types of sources that are most kind of interesting to you right now in terms of where the big opportunity is? And is there any, any issues around kind of sorting or contamination that you also have to deal with? Yeah, you know, a lead with the opportunity is most at the post, post-consumer Unfortunately, we're not, we don't make an impact there because we do need that consistency and volume that you described. You know, we work higher up on the value chain with the food manufacturers, the distributors and processors, because we have to thoroughly vet the suppliers to make sure that there's a transparent communication of any uh, recalls, that if there's any contamination, let's say like a plastic wrapper or something in it, we have a close, trusted, high integrity communication around that. And the food waste type 
needs to be standardized. And the reason why we do that, that allows us to have consistency of the nutrient makeup. So the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium that the farms need to have to make sure the product's going to produce the yields that they want. In terms of the experience, you know, when we first started off, so like 2015, we were full-time on this and still are obviously, but those conversations with food waste suppliers were a bit more challenging because food waste wasn't as much of a national, let's say, movement to drive those tonnage down for landfills. And so a lot of these partners or potential partners were keeping cards close to their chest and it made it hard for us to have like a true partner in the sense. You know, we can't operate unless we have consistent, you know, food food security of food waste security, I should say, because that impacts our ability from a raw material perspective. And so really understanding that each food waste supplier and one that's trying to become a better environmental steward, you know, with having different sensitivities to the conversation, even coming down to the terminology of it. But as, you know, it's more of an ESG conversation, more stakeholders have invested interest in this, more of these types of operators are coming forth with that information just to do the right thing. So I, I think it, it's finally here. Yeah, I actually had a chat to somebody from the EPA a few weeks ago, just kind of researching some different areas of the food system. And she's ran a couple of the programs that around kind of food loss, food waste within the supply chain. And she's like, just people were kind of, you know, hands over eyes for a long time, just not even measuring, you know, the actual quantity of loss. And, you know, large corporations or even medium sized or even small sized corporations, if it's not measured, it's not really you know, no, there's nobody to actually manage it. Definitely. And so, you know, the big change is, is just starting to get some metrics around these things. And then it's in a dashboard somewhere, some you know, middle manager or executive now has to like deal with it. And, you know, I suppose that opens opportunities across the supply chain. Totally. And you know, what's interesting, James, is that, you know, there's starting to be more it's kind of trickling down about pricing the emissions in one supply chain. And if yep. that becomes a label, you know, I would rather be, if I were in their position, at the forefront of it and to be transparent than someone to be late. And then it's like, well, why didn't we talk about this sooner? And, you know, renewable today is carbon negative, I believe. So what's the process of uh, kind of measuring that, tracking that yourselves? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. You know, we always still try to find out the latest of what's the best way to calculate it. Granted, the last time we had a report done, it was by NYP2I, which is a, a group here in New York State that provides this type of service to green companies. But they evaluate from all of our raw materials to our process to the downstream customers, what is our impact from an emissions perspective. And we'll be doing another update to that later this year because we had a couple manufacturing process changes due to COVID. And so, you know, the way we try to calculate it is we look at the entire energy input profile, what's the emissions sourcing the waste, what's the emissions with transporting or hauling the waste. It's pretty thorough from a comprehensive perspective. However, what we need to become better at, and we're still early on this, is what is our impact to reducing the emissions of our, our farms? And so then it's a conversation of, you know, which is a kind of a little bit the experience of what we encountered with the food waste supplier partners. You know, the, the farm needs to be a little willing to really kind of talk about their profile and their carbon footprint so that we can really measure and calculate the impact of substituting our product entirely with their mineral salt 
And right now with mineral salts contributing to 3% of the global greenhouse gas emissions, it's a pretty large effect. But I, I will say larger is their energy profile. Fascinating. And then, you know, one of the aspects of mineral salts, right, when we're trying to figure out, you know, it, the implementation of carbon negative or, you know, at least carbon neutral type products and replacing what's already in existence is things around the price comes up quite a bit, right? So is the, the better for the planet, better for the world at price parity or not? How do you think about that I suppose the question and, you know, in general, what is the kind of primary business model of renewable and how do those kind of finances generally play out? Yeah, absolutely. We feel that we provide a lot of value to the farms and that is one, helping them increase their profit margin if they're already not doing so by growing in their organic category. Two, providing a lot of marketability to their, their farm because they're able to brand it as closed loop operation or at least striving to it. And being conscious, because at the end of the day, their wholesale buyers and consumers care about this. Three, reducing their carbon emissions. And then the four and five is something we're still measuring, but increasing their nutrient profile by showing how our nutrients aid to that. And then three, the energy savings factor that I was mentioning earlier. So at the beginning, we did start off with, okay, we can be a value. This can be a value-based pricing strategy. And it still somewhat is, but we had to really be cautionary and the right word would be aware and knowledgeable that sometimes value needs to be more cost competitive with the industry substitute, not price parity because price parity means you're kind of coming down to lowest cost supplier, right? And that's not our goal. And we provide a lot more value than that. But we also understand that, you know, selling produce is very much a high volume play giving in the small margins or tight margins. So when we go into these types of partnerships with the farm, we, we try to have a very a transparent conversation of like, here's how much value we add. How can we collaboratively like price it in such a way that the value is being recognized because you're going to get the additional marketability and, and hopefully placement, but also not drive it to that we're at price parity with mineral salts. Our mission is to displace mineral salts, but we, we can't come in and be a solution provider that's price parity because then we're dismissing everything else. And also, I mean, the mineral salts aren't really containing the uh, negative externalities anyways, right? So they're not being priced appropriately. That's right. That's right. I believe you also raised some capital recently. You know, what part of your pitch was most compelling to those investors? You know, a lot of these, you know, kind of circular economy are, are quite new concepts, to, to, I think, to a typical kind of private investors. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear what that process was like. Great question. I don't get asked that often. <laughs> but, you know, when, when you're pitching to investors in a very noisy environment, tech first, right? And when you're thinking fertilizer or nutrients, that is so far from tech that, you have, it's a matter of convincing. And so it took a lot of education to really show that like our one, this is such a big challenge in this industry. That was the first thing we had to really educate on. Two is that this is bound to grow. We saw the vision back in 2015, 2013, 12, right? But it didn't become realized until within the last three years, I would say. And then the third thing, and I should say a fourth thing actually, but the third thing is composting solutions is not as widespread as most investors may think. They think there's a lot of solutions because they're, they're seeing it as scalable by software. But to be honest with you, it's far complicated than that. You have AI now using augmented reality to view a produce either at the shelf in the retail or in distribution to project or predict, I should say, 
when it's at a no longer sellable point. And that's great. And there needs to be collaboration with other solution providers along the value chain. But that does not mean that the market is saturated in terms of solutions in this circular economy space with regards to food waste. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, I think more hard science, biomanufacturing or biotech, whatever you you view it, is starting to become realized as the next revolution, industrial revolution. And I'm finally glad to see that because I personally believe not to say that software hasn't been as impactful as others may think, but in order for us, especially to adapt in the way that we need to, given the impact of climate change that we're facing, we have to think around what type of biological capabilities we have now can help us reach the solutions that we need. And I'm not sure if you know some people are familiar with biomimicry, but there's a lot of potential there just really looking at how things are done in the natural environment and trying to replicate those capabilities for solutions or challenges that we have now. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. It's like we have this kind of confluence of different technologies who are all getting to a certain level of maturity all at once, right? So we have some advanced materials technology that's coming online that allows something like biomimicry to work, right? Like, you know, we just didn't have like anything better than aluminum or steel for many years. And now we're starting to have like, you know, very interesting types of carbon fibers and so on. And then also, you know, the brain of that underlies these things. We are getting to a level of machine learning that you actually train models, you're just much faster, right? So sometimes, you know, we can figure it out, but like if you had to retrain the model over the course of three weeks, that's not something that you can dynamically like introduce into, you know, a given, you know, live situation. Whereas now if you can, if the model is retraining, learning on a minute to minute basis, you're starting to again, see that, that, and then the final piece is on the pure biotech. One of the ways, I, you know, I think about biotech in general is like, it's the world's greatest moat, right? Like it is such a like fascinating space to build something in. It usually takes many, many years, but because of those first two kind of principles, we're starting to like speed up the, you know, the actual time to market. Patents are, you know, nice in, in the biotech space, like they're very easy to protect. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating seeing, you know, more traditional software VCs start to kind of, you know, dip their toe into hard tech and biotech of various types. Totally. And I think, you know, more the climate tech too. I think, you know, investors are being more conscious, finally, be more conscious of how the dollars are actually impacting rather than just focusing on revenue. And their garden's on fire, right? (laughs) You know, that helps convince some people or they lose electricity in the middle of the afternoon or, you know, New York flooded, right? Like whatever last week, you know, all these things. You know, I often think that, you know, the best time to have a, you know, some sort of VC like meeting is like the day after they're, you know, they had a brownout, right? Like that is a good time to be pitching a climate tech. Yep. Yep. I can't agree with you more. I suppose what's the next kind of one to two years look like for renewable? It's a good question, you know, because we... We really want to be a leader in terms of realizing that there is a, a viable solution to, or alternative solution, I should say, to mineral salts. So that's the first and foremost kind of goal of ours. With that, we also want to drive the, the awareness that, you know, grow media can be just as replaced for rock wool and peat because those are incredibly extractive to our environment and create emissions itself. So we have a product for that as well. But Where we see ourselves scaling, we want to have multiple facilities around the U.S. to start. So at least Florida, Texas, California, we've gotten a lot of interest elsewhere. We also see us being able to scale this, whether it's through licensing or doing other operating models with municipalities outside of the U.S. So when you look at Europe, some of these farms aren't able to get organic certification because they're still using mineral salts. So there's been a lot of pull demand for what we're doing 
India, especially in Africa as well, because not only, so what we're seeing is the certification, especially on the European side. In India, it is, they really are passionate about this more holistic, sustainable way of growing and have wanted to adopt that method or this way of growing at the beginning, rather than starting off with mineral salt and then trying to transition to this way of growth. So it's a very different mindset than what we're seeing here in the U.S. And then elsewhere, especially when you're looking at the UAE, the Meta region, and Singapore, for example, where food waste is a pretty predominant challenge. You know, about 80% of food waste is being generated, especially around specific holidays in these cultures. And then, you know, they want to reduce their dependence on imported produce. So all of these kind of other, you know, tailwinds you mentioned are market-driven factors allow us to make an easy case to replicate renewable outside the U.S. For us, it's a matter of finding the right type of strategic partners that will do this in such a way that we have, which is the following, knowing the food waste landscape very well, because we do have to make sure that our method applies to it pretty uniformly. Two, understanding that the farms, whether indoor or soil, even though right now we focus on indoor, we can also be a viable input for outdoor as well. And for economies and markets outside the U.S., most of these agricultural economies are still using manure, and, and which is great, right? But if we're going to make an impact for soil, can we be a viable alternative to manure, which is sourced for free? And then the third thing is, you know, can we help these farms, and probably the most passionate that I'm about, can we help these farms really withstand the growing, I would say, challenges operating in a much different environmental conditions than they have in the past? And I think our products have a lot of promising abilities to do that. We're just now capturing this data, giving some feedback from farms. Yeah, you know, I love that. It's absolutely, you know, incredibly exciting. And, you know, those kind of somewhat unique regional challenges like have these very common elements and absolutely the kind of market yeah is there like i absolutely agree with you on that you mentioned earlier that you know this whole space was relatively new to you when you first started kind of looking into it you know didn't grow up on a farm like like i've mentioned before on the podcast i grew up on a farm in ireland when you started kind of digging into the space what most surprised you about like the food system so here in the u.s i didn't realize how siloed things are in agriculture. So I say that because when I went to the Farm Bureau convention in 2019, I think it was, that audience was largely, you know, largely your animal kind of, I'm not saying the right word for this, but livestock, livestock, (laughs) livestock farms or your row crops or, you know, not as much specialty crops. Mm -hmm. And certainly there was, I didn't see anyone that was representing the indoor farms, right? And so I... I was probably one of maybe 10 individuals of a crowd of probably at least a thousand people at that convention that were of color. And I didn't get a positive reception to just having open conversation. I was in this one, one room where we were talking about sustainability and it was very, it seemed to be a, a, a rhetoric of city versus farm people if that makes sense. And I just, I was just so ignorant to how there's very much a, a very, a very big division. And I was, I can talk to anyone, doesn't matter where they come from, the status. And so I am trying my hardest to bring as much awareness to as diverse and diversity doesn't just come down to ethnic background, but also just economic and location. 
so that more farms, especially rural, can also see this as a model that they can extend their growing season, diversify their revenue revenue streams and crop type, and inspire more youth to be able to, to kind of see this as a a career that could be interesting because there is going to be more professionals needed in agriculture. And I don't think, I, I don't know yet if I'm seeing enough of that gap of what, what we need to hire for being prepared from a talent pipeline perspective yet. No, so those are some great points. You know, I, yeah, as I mentioned, came from agriculture background, lived in New York for a very long time. And, you know, there's often kind of, it's often decried, right, that the consumer is very disconnected from the source of their food. But it goes both ways. Like farmers are very disconnected from the actual people who consume their food. And, you know, it, it's, you see it in certain political divides in the United States between rural and urban, you know, like density of like per square kilometer density directly maps on electoral maps of various types, right? Like that's very kind of clear relation. And so one of the, you know, things I've, I've kind of jokingly, half jokingly proposed to people is like, you know, adopt a city dweller, adopt a farmer kind of like, like conversations just to start having people speak to each other because there really is this kind of massive disconnect. And it is very much driven by, you know, this uh, very monopolistic system you have in the United States. You know, even like the large companies that buy grain, you know, they're disconnected from the farmers because the grain elevator wants to keep them disconnected because like every aspect of the relationship has been very, very much siloed nearly on purpose so that, you know, specific monopolists can own specific parts of the value chain. And like, it is very, very exciting that we're just slowly starting to see that break up because of all the other kind of macro elements that we already talked about. Absolutely. And you said it so eloquently. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I think it, it is starting to change. I, I hope that the education and the training catches up. And the last thing I'll say is that I think, I hope there's more collaboration as to the insights of how things are being grown nationwide, irrespective of where, because if Florida is dealing with certain growth patterns that perhaps California-based farms, I would imagine that there's insights being exchanged. I just don't know how efficient that knowledge is being being shared. Absolutely. And, and the you know, the talent crunch is real and you know, I think everyone has, we have to be very clever. We have to like really be, you know, much more mission driven, you know, look to the future because it's very hard to attract the best people unless you have that ingrained in, in your culture. I think about the oil and gas companies, it's like, you know, they, they can't hire a good software engineer. It's just like literally impossible. And so, you know, the, the, it, it's going to affect them, right? Regardless of everything else that, that will hopefully affect them. When I think about, I talked to the various founders, like I'm always fascinated by kind of how they got there and, and all that kind of thing. You know, if you were supposed to give advice to the next generation analog of, of yourself, I guess, you know, what kind of information would you love to give them? What kind of information you wish or advice you wish you had received as, as you kind of went along the process? Yeah, you know, I, so I bootstrapped this and not just I, our team bootstrapped this for a number of years. And I think just the fact that we were agriculture and we're manufacturing, like name any challenge, we've gone through it. I wish we had the agility and it's just far easier to be a software company. I, I will say that. But I think what really kind of helped us is talking about what we're doing as soon as I started it, right? And that allowed us to even just put our website or blog to develop the, the the narrative and having more conversations because the network was built since I started those early steps. One website that I would encourage early entrepreneurs or those that are aspirational to become an entrepreneur, f6s.com, F as in Frank, number six, and then S as in Sam. That had a plethora of 
not only resources in terms of accelerators, grants, business plan competitions, pitches, that early capital to help you that was the most high risk and help you kind of get your product started. And it allowed us to, you know, create the visibility that helped us benefit from SEO, things that become much more important later on. But yeah, developing the brand equity sooner and just talking about it, don't worry about fear because what I'm seeing, I do a lot of mentoring, but I see a lot of entrepreneurs that started the product or new technology because they personally encountered a, a personal challenge. And though it may resonate with customers, they never really validated the, how many people would pay for this until after they invested $100,000 and they're still working full time. And, you know, there's just, and granted, you know, full time because they have other obligations, right? So I get that. But it's just really important to think through the what is. If you launch this product, how you're going to raise X or have another co-founder that can be available for accelerators that you aren't able to, because I find people get stuck because they, they can't get around that challenge that comes to not having either a big enough team or not enough money or no one really knows us type question. Yeah, those are great points. You know, I think just talk about what you're working on. Like that's that's great. Like I like I love that people uh, often yeah struggle with that right because like once you put it out there, it's it's you're you know exposing your vulnerability and like that's a tough place to be. You know, especially if you're kind of have a full time job elsewhere and and all this kind of thing. Um, maybe you know the boss finds out, and so like there are those kind of pressures to keep you quiet. But I also think that you know the startup ecosystem as a, as a rule does a bad job of really kind of articulating whether something's VC backable or not. You know, a ton of people will start a company and not, you know, maybe I could definitely be wrong about these things, but I'm like, that's a great bootstrap company. That's a great $10 million a year revenue company that would make all the founders very well, personally wealthy, does a, you know, makes a small problem solved, does a bit of good in the world, but there's no real framework like in popular media for that organization like everything is like go you know go raise a million dollars go raise 10 million dollars and like you really need to be able to prove that you're going to be a billion dollar company for somebody to give you a couple million dollars like that's that's just you know the mentality understandably of the vc world and and it's just like it's like learning about how the investor class speaks so that you don't just waste a ton of time and like actually try to build, build a bootstrap business or some other type of smaller business rather than kind of waiting for a check that just will never come because it's just not something that a VC might invest in. Yeah. And, you know, if there were more entrepreneurs, and maybe this is something I have to think about, but like just thinking, you know, five years back, what were all the questions you wished you would have had answered or encountered either through due diligence or while you're building a product or X business? And then being able to put that within each stage, I think just having that context will help people realize like whether they want to even pursue it further and not waste X thousands of dollars because they, they have that rationale a little bit sooner. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that that's a great point. This has been great, Tania. I absolutely love that. You know, before we finish up, is there anything I should have asked you about, but did not? I would say, you know what, what may be interesting to your audience is, is there any component that perhaps there could be a tech enablement that we haven't thought of yet and that mm-hmm. could be useful? You know, what has been, I had a colleague that works for Amazon and he was talking about, you know, the potential for like VR within the food waste procurement and, and management of it. And I spoke about the, this one AI company earlier that uses it to, to predict when a, a produce actually reaches its like non-sellable point. 
But I think if there were something that would allow, uh, you know, it's a great model. Like if, if, if something were to help food waste processors or handlers be able to identify contaminants or risks that one would need to be aware of, let's say bacterially, et cetera. And that may involve like AI and spectral vision. That would be interesting enablement there. No, I love that idea. And actually, we had um, Katya from a bio, Astral Biotechnology on a few months ago, and she built this sensor that uh, like detects, uh, you know, when apples, you know, start to get too ripe or start to go off. And I think there's this whole ecosystem of, you know, computer vision to identify specific colors of things. And then, you know, sensors have just become so, so cheap. Uh, like a friend of mine just ordered a few sensor parts on on Amazon, like Amazon.com, and like just built a sensor to detect, you know, atmospheric carbon just as a as a fun thing, a couple hundred wow. bucks. Yeah, it, it it was absolutely incredible. Literally five years ago, that would have been like a five thousand dollars in three month process. It's it's amazing how some how cheap some of these sensors have come down. And you know, if anybody has a little bit of skill set on the hardware side, I think there's so many opportunities on that side as well. That is crazy. Yeah, I guess if it's on Amazon, it's accessible, huh? Absolutely. Uh, Tinius, this has been great. Cheers very much. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, James. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.